scripture today comes from Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Uh, Mark chapter 9. We're going to be in verse 42 through, verses, through verse 50. And as you guys are turning there, we once again, we are in a series preaching verse by verse through the gospel according to Mark. And we arrive at a passage that I maybe am not always excited to, to, to preach about because this is a hard passage. This is an extreme passage passage. But we're going to ask for God's grace that, that we know that all of his word is beneficial for us and is for our good, and so we need to, to hear what Jesus is teaching us in this word. But as you're turning there, I want you to think of some of the different warnings that we receive in life, because we all receive warnings. We do. Some are serious warnings. Some are not so serious warnings. Uh, some are warnings that we listen to, and some are warnings that we ignore. For example, when your phone, when the battery gets low, it gives you usually a warning, right? Now, that's not that big of a deal. Uh, maybe for some of you it is, if you have a, a phone addiction or something like that. Uh, but that's not that big of a deal when, when your battery's low on your phone. The worst thing that's going to happen is that your phone shuts off, and that might be actually a really good gift for you that day. Um, or maybe it's the warning that your car gives you when, when the gas is getting low, right? Usually a light comes on to warn you that the gas is low. Now, I know that some of you, when the gas gets just to like a quarter tank left, you're going right to the gas station to fill up. But then there are others who will wait for the gas light to come on and then push it another 30 miles just to see how far you can make it. But nonetheless, the, your car, it warns you, right, when you're getting low on gas. And that's a little bit more serious of a warning. It's not the end of the world if you run out of gas, but it is going to cause you to have to stop the car, pull over, and go get gas or call someone to get some help. Or what about the flashing lights at the railroad tracks that are warning you that a train is coming? Now, that's a little bit more serious of a warning because it's telling you that a train, something that is much bigger and more powerful than your car, is coming your direction. But even then, some people don't listen to that warning, right? In an attempt to save five minutes from their day, they're willing to risk their entire life to try to beat the train and get across the tracks. 
And we all receive warnings. We receive warnings from different places. We receive warnings from teachers. Some of us receive warnings from parents. Some of us have received warnings from police officers. And some of us receive warnings from doctors. Some we listen to and some we don't. But needless to say, there are a lot of warnings that we, we receive in life. And in today's passage in Mark, again, at first read, it can seem a bit extreme. And that is because it is. It is, okay? Jesus is going to give us some extreme warnings today. And I think our natural inclination is to come to a text like this and to read a passage like this and try to kind of talk out and take out the extremeness of the passage, okay? Because we we assume that the extremeness of the passage is going to somehow misrepresent or take away from the goodness of God and the grace of God and the love of God. But listen, extreme warnings are good and gracious and loving when there is extreme danger ahead. No one looks at the flashing light at the railroad tracks and say that it it was unloving for someone to put that there to warn that a train is coming. No, even in these extreme warnings, we see that our God is good and gracious and loving. And so let's pray and let's ask God to help us listen to these warnings from Jesus. Father God, we do ask for your help today. We want to know you. We want to behold you. We want to to learn about you and enjoy you in in a way that is right and true. And we come to a passage like this that It's hard, it's difficult to read, God. These are some serious, and these are some extreme warnings that you are giving. So I ask for your grace as I I preach, Lord. Spirit, that you would empower me, that you would only allow me to say the, the truth, that you'd give us ears to hear this, hearts to receive this. And Lord, help us hear these warnings, Jesus, that you gave us. We ask this in your name. Amen. All right, we'll look now at Mark 9, verse 42. Jesus is once again teaching his disciples, and he's getting them ready, trying to prepare them for what's going to happen in Jerusalem, where he knows that he is going to ultimately be killed, and and three days later to rise from the dead. And the disciples, you remember, they have just argued about who amongst themselves is the greatest. They then just talked about how they tried to stop someone from doing good work because he wasn't following them, not because he wasn't following Jesus. And now we pick up in verse 42, Mark 9, verse 42. And Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So Jesus, in verse 41, had just taught that even the smallest act of kindness and generosity to another Christian, it would not go unnoticed to God, and you would not lose a reward. So look back with me at verse, at verse 41. He, he was saying, For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. 
We know that as followers of Jesus, we have been united with Christ, and therefore it is no longer just us who lives, right? But Christ in us who lives, and the Spirit of Christ is in us. And so if Christ lives in every believer, then how we treat other believers is how we treat Christ. Whether it's for the good, like in verse 41, giving someone a cup of cold water, or for the bad, verse 42, causing one of these little ones to sin. Now, when we hear little ones, we automatically assume he's talking just about kids. But this phrase, little little ones, is something he refers to all believers, okay? So whether child or adult, he's referring all believers, all followers of Jesus. He says, whoever causes one of these who believe in me to sin, to sin. Now, in the original language, it's, it's to stumble or to fall away. And so he's saying, okay, whoever would cause a believer to stumble or fall away from following me, here's the warning he gives. He says, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now that's a big warning. That's a big warning. A a millstone, we've got a couple of pictures up here, okay? A millstone was a huge, heavy stone, It typically weighed tons, tons, and it was used to grind corn or grind wheat into flour. You can go to the next picture, yeah. And usually either uh, either a person or a donkey or something would would have to be used to to roll the stone and to grind up uh, the flour. It's a huge stone, huge stone that Jesus is talking about. He's giving us an extreme warning that there is something even worse than having one of these stones tied around your neck and being thrown into the sea, which that in and of itself sounds pretty awful, right? That's pretty severe. That's, that's a big deal. And Jesus is teaching us, he's saying there's something even worse than that that awaits the person that persists in causing believers to stumble. It's a big warning. This is a big warning. And this is a big warning for for false teachers, especially for those who know they are false teachers, but they're doing it for a paycheck, and so they twist God's word and they mislead God's people. This is a big warning for someone who has walked away from the faith, and now they are trying to deceive and convince others to walk away from the faith as well. And this is a big warning for for the college professor who it is their life goal to crush the faith of the incoming freshmen who are Christians. And this is a big warning for someone who is intentionally tempting people to sin. It's a big warning. And this warning and this punishment, it directly applies to those who are intentionally causing others to stumble and abandon the faith. But listen, don't think that this warning isn't for us as well. Because we also need to hear this warning. Because many of us, many of us, we unintentionally, without knowing it sometimes, can cause our brothers and sisters to stumble. 
Now, now listen, the punishment that this warning gives does not directly apply to believers, okay? For we know that those who are in Christ, Christ has taken our punishment. He has paid for it. And therefore, I'm not saying that if you cause a fellow believer to sin, that you will still receive a punishment worse than having a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. No, Christ has taken the punishment of his people. And so while the punishment isn't directly applicable to us, this warning still is. Because in this warning, we see the heart of God and how seriously he takes when someone causes one of his children to sin. He takes this so seriously. So we need to hear this warning as well. And as Christians, we must consider if how we are living maybe even unintentionally, we need to consider if how we are living is causing a brother or sister in Christ to stumble and to fall away from God. Paul, Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 14. We'll have it up on the screen. He writes, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Followers of Jesus, we should consider others more highly than ourselves. And so followers of Jesus, we should prayerfully consider how we are living and whether or not it is causing fellow believers to fall into sin. A follower of Jesus should be asking the question, is what I'm wearing causing a brother or sister to stumble? And I'm not just talking about clothing with our modesty. I know that's where we kind of first go when we think that way. Certainly that should be considered. But, but is what we're wearing even causing one another to become materialistic? Is even what we're wearing causing one another to, to covet and to struggle with what they have? A follower of Jesus should consider what they are eating and what they are drinking and where they are eating and where they are drinking and whether or not that is causing a brother or sister to be tempted with gluttony, to be tempted with drunkenness. A follower of Jesus should consider what they are posting on social media and whether or not it could cause another brother or sister to struggle with jealousy or discontentment, right? I mean, if you took a be a, a, a summer beach trip, which is great, right? You come back with photos and you post it every day throughout the winter of photos of you on the beach. Like, just consider, like, is this causing your brothers and sisters who are laboring in Indiana, shoveling their driveways, could this be stirring up some discontentment and jealousy in their heart? Now listen, the unhealthy response to these considerations of causing one another to, to stumble, the unhealthy response is for me or for your pastors or for your leaders to think about these things and put together a list of do's and don'ts or put together a strict set of guidelines that you must follow in order not to cause anyone else to stumble. That is an unhealthy response to this right? Like we come up with a strict dress code that everyone must adhere by, or we say that you can't eat these certain things or drink these certain things or watch this certain thing or go to this certain place. That would be an unhealthy response. A healthy response would be for you to ask the Holy Spirit 
to reveal to you and to convict you of ways that you are causing other believers to stumble. A healthy response would be for you to ask your city group, your small group, for, to, to ask other believers who are close to you, to ask your spouse, to ask your kids, to ask your friends, are there ways, are there things that I'm doing that are causing you to trip up in your walk with Christ? Joel, our, our youngest son, he just turned one, and he's just started to walk. And he's got the bruises on his forehead to prove it. Uh, and it's a, it's a pretty cute walk. Uh, you know, he's kind of, what he does when he walks, he uses his arms for balance. So he's kind of like punching and directing him in all different directions just to try to keep his balance. Now, when Jackson, who's our oldest, when he started to walk, right, we made sure that the floor was perfectly clear, right? It was so easy to keep the house clean at that point, right? There was nothing in his way. Just, he could just walk wherever, nothing to trip over, nothing to stumble over. But Joel, he's at a little bit of a disadvantage because he has three older brothers, which automatically guarantees the floor is never going to be perfectly clear of any, any toys or any Legos. And so he's trying to walk through this landmine of toys and Legos and inevitably always will trip over one and fall. Now, his brothers were not intentionally trying to hurt him, right? They weren't scheming about, you know, where to put this toy or this Lego to try to trip him up. They weren't. But the fact remains that because of them not putting the Legos away without realizing it, it has caused their younger brother to trip and fall and get hurt. And so, church, my question for you is, what Legos are you putting in front of your brothers and sisters that they're tripping over? I know that might sound silly, but I think it'll stick with you, okay? What Legos are you putting out and leaving out that your brothers and sisters are stumbling over? Now, I, I can't answer that question for you, but I believe that the Holy Spirit can. And I believe your fellow brothers and sisters can, and your city group can, and your spouse can. Ask them, ask them, and consider this warning from Jesus. He does not take lightly anyone causing his children to stumble. Now listen, Joel isn't the only one who trips over Legos, okay? There are many times I will see a mess, and I will leave the mess for later on, and then later on, usually in the dark or late at night, earlier in the morning, I will then step on the Lego that I knew I should have picked up the day before. And those of you who have stepped on a Lego in the dark first thing in the morning, you know there is nothing like that pain, right? It's like the pain, you, you feel the sharpness kind of like digging into your foot, but then you just also feel the frustration, and then you realize you can't be frustrated with anyone but yourself because you knew you should have picked it up, right? And it's just all this turmoil going on in your head, right? Or, or maybe it's, maybe you don't have Legos. Maybe it's like you stub your toe on that thing you knew you should have put away in the closet, but you left it there. You thought, hey, it's not harming anyone, and then later on, you stub your toe on this thing. Church, you see, there are things that we are doing, there are places we are going, there are things we are watching that are not just causing others to stumble, but they are causing us to stumble. 
And so Jesus has some more warnings for us. Look back at Mark 9, verse 43. Mark 9, verse 43. And he says, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now this is a pretty extreme warning by Jesus. And I'm going to try not to tone it down, but I am going to try to clarify what he's talking about. Because if, if we were playing the would you rather game, okay, would, Jesus, you know, would you rather live this life with no hands, no feet, and no eyes, but enter into the kingdom of God? Or would you rather live your life here and now with your hands, with your feet, with your eyes, but go to this place that Jesus calls hell, the unquenchable fire? Jesus is pretty much saying that should be a no-brainer. Like, sacrifice whatever you have to pursue life in the kingdom of God because the alternative is this place called hell. Now, the English word hell, hell, in the original Greek, it's the word Gehenna. Gehenna. And Gehenna means the Valley of Hinnom. So we need to understand a little bit about the Valley of Hinnom. You see, the Valley of Hinnom, it was outside of the city of Jerusalem. And it was the spot where, back in the Old Testament, we learned that King Ahaz had led people in the pagan practice of child sacrifice. They would sacrifice children to the false lowercase g god Molech. It was also called the Valley of Drums because drums were constantly beaten to drown out the sounds of the children screaming. That's a horrific thought. I'm sorry to even share that thought, but I want you to understand the backstory of Gehenna and the Valley of Hinnom. Later on, King Josiah, he would stop this pagan practice and he instead turns the valley into the city dump. And it's where all the animal carcasses would be thrown. It would be where the, the uh, cr- criminal corpses would be thrown who didn't deserve a proper, proper burial. It was where all the city trash and everything would be thrown out into Gehenna. And then in order to keep the dump from overflowing, fires would be lit to burn up all the trash, to burn up all the corpses. And the fires would continually be burning in this valley because garbage was continually added to it. And the maggots and the worms, they had continual amounts of things to devour. And so eventually Gehenna, this valley... It became a Jewish metaphor for the place the Bible teaches us of this final punishment, what in our English language we call hell. And when we bring up the, this concept of hell, we don't, we don't bring it up lightly. It had been said of D.L. Moody that he could not ever talk of hell without weeping over it. And that needs to be our same 
posture as well. The fact that there is a place that is even worse than this valley outside Jerusalem, where there will be an unquenchable fire and eternal suffering that we all really deserve because of our sin, but it will ultimately be for those who reject the salvation that Jesus offers them. And this should cause us, out of a love and compassion for those who don't know Jesus, to warn them in the same way that Jesus is warning us. And so Jesus is warning us, he's, he's teaching us that living in the kingdom of God, it will be worth the loss and removal of any temporary thing here in this life because the alternative to life in the kingdom is this place of eternal punishment called hell, called Gehenna. But this is extreme. This is extreme. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eyes cause you to sin, tear them out. Now, this would have especially been pretty extreme to the Jewish people that were first hearing this. The, the Greeks would have taken it a little differently because the Greeks, they really didn't value the physical things in, the, in life. They thought that, that uh, the intellectual and the mind and the spirit were superior to the physical. So they didn't value the body or body parts. But Jewish people extremely valued the physical. And they, they valued the body and recognized these as being a precious gift from God. And so they would view their hands and their eyes and their feet as being precious precious gifts from God. And Jesus is saying, cut them off or tear them out if they are causing you to fall away from God. He, he's not saying cut off like bad things. He's saying, I realize you see your body as precious gifts of God, which they are, but he's saying even that, they, if they're causing you to fall away from God, cut them off and tear them out. Now listen, let me clarify. Jesus is not teaching about actual body mutilation, okay? He's not. I thought about maybe having you sign a waiver that I clarified that point, that he's not teaching about actual body mutilation, okay? Because listen, God does not contradict himself. And back in Deuteronomy, God had given instruction to his people not to cut their bodies or not to harm their bodies. And back in Mark 7 then, Jesus taught us that, hey, sin actually flows out of the heart. It comes from within us. So really losing your hand or foot or eye, you would still find other ways to sin because sin is ultimately a heart problem. And so Jesus is not actually telling us to go physically harm ourselves. That is not what he's saying. But what he's using is he's using this intentional overstatement, okay? This kind of shock and awe statement to make a point, to make a point. Theologian John Stott, in regards to this passage, he wrote a quote that I think is, is helpful for us in our understanding. We have it up on the screen he writes, What our Lord was advocating, therefore, was not a literal physical self-maiming, but a ruthless moral self-denial. Not mutilation, but mortification is the path of holiness he taught. And Kev, you can leave that up on the screen for a, a couple minutes here. So thank you, John Stott, for helping us clarify this. Jesus was not teaching extreme mutilation. 
However, he was teaching extreme mortification. Now, mortification is one of those fancy uh, words that, you know, if you get really psyched about reading Puritans or hanging out with certain people, you might use, but it's not really a word we commonly use. So let's try to understand what it means, okay? To mortify sin means to destroy its strength, to destroy its vitality and the way that it functions in your life. To mortify sin means to subdue it and deaden it in your life. And it's what Paul was getting at when he wrote to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, when he says this. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. The King James translates that, mortify what is er earthly in you, right? Put to death the sin that remains in your life. And so listen, this warning from Jesus, it is still extreme, but it's not extreme mutilation. He's talking about extreme mortification, fighting and killing your sin. And John Owen, in his book, The Mortification of Sin, wrote this, that is now it's become a famous quote. Many of you have probably heard it before. He writes, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Now listen, we do not put to death sin by our own strength. We often try to do that and we often fail. Owen goes on to write this. He writes, the spirit alone is sufficient for this work. All ways and means without him are useless. He is the great efficient. He is the one who gives life and strength to our effort. So church, to kill your sin, to fight your sin, there is going to take on your part an effort, but it is the Spirit's work that gives life and strength to our effort. And to try to kill our sin without the, the, the work of the Spirit, is useless, and it will fail. The only way we are to subdue, deaden, and kill sin in our life is by the strength of the Holy Spirit using the power of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is our offensive weapon in fighting sin, in putting it to death. During the Reformation, one of the biggest challenges that the Reformers faced was translating the Bible into the common language that people spoke and getting them printed and distributed, getting people Bibles so they had them in their hands. I think probably one of the biggest challenges we face in our day is actually for people to open their Bible. Many of us have Bibles. Many of us have multiple Bibles. But are we opening them up? Are we reading them? Are we meditating on them? Are we, are we memorizing them? Are we sharing God's word with one another? And so I would just encourage you, maybe as a very simple application point from this, like go to your home and wherever your Bibles are at, like just leave them open. Leave an open Bible on your dining room table. Leave an open Bible on your kitchen counter. Leave an open Bible in your living room. What would change if the word was already open and you read it and you enjoyed it and you savored it? 
Now listen. The things that the Bible calls sin, it's many times obvious that those need to be put to death and taken out of your life. But what about the things that are causing you to sin? Because that's what he's kind of getting at in this passage. Obviously, there's sin in your life that you're being convicted of that you know is there. It needs to be taken out, needs to be removed from your life. But what are the things that are causing you to sin? Like, what things are you doing, and, and what places are you going, right? He, Jesus uses our hands and feet and eyes, right? Hands to signify, like, what things are you doing? Your feet, where, what places are you going? Your eyes, what things are you watching that are leading and causing you to sin? And I can't tell you exactly what those things are. They're going to be different for many of us. But I do believe that the Holy Spirit is telling you right now. For some of you, it's, it's, for some of you, it's TV. For some of you, it's what you're watching. For some of you, it's what you're doing with your money that's causing you to sin. You're being stingy with God. You're being generous with yourself. You're developing a love for money even though you don't have much money, right? For some of you, it's social media, for some of you, it's certain people that you are spending time with. For some of you, it's, it's certain foods or certain drinks that you're consuming. For some of you, it's certain music that you're listening to. For some of you, it's certain situations that you keep putting yourself in, knowing that you always end up falling into sin in those temptations, but just hoping that the next time is going to be different. And so church, what Legos are you leaving out that are causing you to stumble? Like what's causing you to sin? Jesus says, cut it off. Tear it out. Why? Because you're being prepared for life in the kingdom of God. Like if you are in Christ, you will at some point get serious about your sin. You will get extreme about mortifying your sin because you are being prepared for life in the kingdom. But if you don't ever get serious about it, there should be serious concern as to if you are really in Christ and Christ is in you. Because Jesus warns us that there are those who are going to be punished in hell. Now here's where we need to understand that when we're talking about sin, most definitely what's sin for me is also sin for you, right? What the Bible calls sin is sin for all of us. We need to understand that. But we also need to understand that what causes me to sin might not be what causes you to sin, okay? And so there are some of us who we can watch TV without falling into sin, and there's freedom there for people to watch TV. I'm not saying that no one can watch TV. There are some of us who can watch TV and not fall into sin. And so watch TV. But then there are some of us who cannot watch TV because we know that it causes us to fall into certain sins. Okay? And, but we must show grace with one another. Okay? Because this is where what causes you to sin might be different from what causes me to sin. And therefore, I can't take my convictions over something and put them on you and expect you to have the same convictions as me. 
Does that make sense? Are you guys with me on, on this? We need to show grace with one another, okay? This is why people in the past uh, have gotten in trouble really just being super religious and legalistic and saying you can't watch this, can't go here, can't do this, can't do this. It probably started as being a well-intentioned thing, but then it got out of hand, it got legalistic, it got self-righteous, right? And so we must show grace to one another in our convictions about certain things that maybe cause us to sin. And if we do this, if we show grace with one another, it will allow us to be at peace with one another. Look back at, at Mark 9, okay? Look back at Mark 9, verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Okay, that statement, for everyone will be salted with fire, it's a little uh, bit of a strange statement. It doesn't really necessarily make all that much sense right at first. And it's mainly because we are not familiar with the Old Testament sacrificial system, like the disciples would have been and those that are reading this for the, and hearing this for the first time. You see, back in the book of Leviticus, we learn about five different offerings. We learn about burnt offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, and then grain offerings. Okay, stick with me, all right? Don't, don't, don't let me lose you, okay? Uh, Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, up on the screen, it says, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering, and with all your offerings you shall offer salt. So I didn't realize dad adding salt to everything he eats before tasting it is actually a very biblical thing. Okay, so saying add salt to these offerings, okay? Salt is a preservative, right? Before refrigeration, salt was used to preserve foods and to keep them from, from rotting. And what salt would symbolize in these offerings, it represented God's covenant promises and his preserving faithfulness. Okay, salt would be a reminder of his preserving faithfulness. Now listen, four of the offerings were animal offerings, and they all stem from a need for sin to be atoned for. But the grain offering was an offering of devotion and dedication. The grain offering symbolizes an extreme form of dedication and devotion to God. You gather grain, you bring it to the altar, you put salt on it to remember that it, God will keep his part of the covenant faithfully, that he will be faithful to preserve his promises. Now listen, while we no longer offer grain offerings, we are encouraged in Romans to offer our lives as living sacrifices, as living offerings. Romans 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. But here's the cool thing. Before an offering of devotion and dedication could be made, before the grain offering could be made, an offering of an unblemished animal had to be made first to atone for sins. Blood had to be shed first to cover sins. 
And so church, the reason that we can offer our lives to God as living sacrifices is because Jesus first sacrificed his life for us. He made things right where our sins had made things wrong. And it is only because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we have now been freed from sin, that we've now been empowered by the Spirit to take things that are causing us to sin, to cut them off, to tear them out, and to make an offering to God of of extreme devotion and dedication to Him. And so listen, verse 49, it says, everyone will be salted with fire, meaning fire will be for punishment for those who are perishing, but for those in Christ, for those who have been salted by God, the fire will not destroy them, the fire will purify them. The fire will prepare them for life in the kingdom of God. And so this is why as believers, we can face hardships and trials and persecutions. We can even face temptations. We can even at times, you know, stumble and fall and be bruised, but then we can repent and confess. We can get up, we can keep following after Jesus. And all of that is being used by God in a believer's life to help them put to death sin, to help them purify them to get them ready for life in the kingdom. The hardships that we face, they are not punishing hardships from God. They are purifying hardships because of his preserving faithfulness. Jesus is preparing us for life in the kingdom. And it is because of his sacrifice and his preserving covenant that we will be preserved for glory. Without Christ, the fire would lead to us perishing. But with Christ, the fire leads us to being purified. It's, it's the imagery of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Benny. If you like the VTV, uh, uh, VTV is the VeggieTales version of that, okay? So uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm closing with this. You don't have to turn there, right? You remember, some of you, most of you remember the story. King Nebuchadnezzar throws these three guys into a fiery furnace because they desire to obey God. He throws them into the fiery furnace and they should have perished, right? Like the fire should have caused them to perish. But what did King Nebuchadnezzar see when he looked into the fire? He did not see three men. He saw four. And he said the fourth one had the image of the son, looked like a son of God, right? And we pick it up in Daniel 3, uh, verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. I'll read that again. They saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Listen, guys, the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. Why? Because Jesus entered into the fire with them. 
And Holy Spirit, may the same be true of every man and every woman and every child here today, that because of the work of Jesus, because of the indwelling of his spirit, that there would be no fire, there would be no trial, there would be no any, any temptation that would hold any power over us this morning because Jesus has entered into the fire with us. And church, these warnings that Jesus gives us, they are extreme warnings. But Jesus is also extremely gracious and loving and good to give us these warnings, and not to just give us these warnings, but he entered into the fire with us. To be tempted as we are tempted, and yet he did not fall so that we can have victory over sin. And so we could cut off and tear out of our lives what is causing us and others to fall away. And so I, I pray that the Spirit would convict you today. My prayer has been that the Spirit would convict us of any ways that we are causing our brothers and sisters to stumble or fall in their walk with Christ. And then I've also been praying that the Spirit would convict us of things that we are doing, places we are going, things we are watching, that we need to take extreme action against today and cut off and tear out of our life. What Legos are you leaving out for others and yourself to stumble over? And I think you know what it is. I think you've known what it is. You just haven't confessed it to God. You haven't confessed it to one another. You haven't taken the, the power of the word and the spirit, and you haven't taken extreme action against it. But my prayer is that you would do that today. That you would turn from your sin today. You would turn from what's causing you to fall into sin today. And I believe that the Spirit who has convicted you of this will surely be faithful to strengthen you, to cut it off and tear it out, and to fight it. Let's pray.